It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rule book, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Susan Campbell, and this is The Big Rethink. Today's episode is about the process of integrating technology into teaching and learning. So I'm so excited today. Our guest is Dr. Anthony Sonny Magania, who serves as both the CEO of Magania Education and as a research associate at Marzano Research. Welcome to the show, Dr. Magania. Uh, thank you, Susan. Please call me Sonny. Okay, will do. <laughs> thank you, Sonny. Um, so let's dive right in. Uh, such an important and interesting topic. In your role at Magania Education, you have a unique understanding of the educational process um, you're working with on implementing, which is influenced by insights from your work at the Marzano Research. So uh, t- is that like double dipping or is that <laughs> just cross-pollinating, I guess, no, right? Yeah, no, it's, uh, that's a good way to put it. It is cross-pollinating. I, you know, I've, I've been a teacher, practitioner, researcher for uh, four decades. And I uh, so I started when I was very young. So I'm going to say that right off the bat. <laughs> I started very young. But there are very few people uh, that have been uh, searching this particular or, or going down this line of inquiry as long as I have. Uh, but I just happened to get into teaching in the 1980s, 1983 to be exact, um, about the same time that uh, technology made its way into K-12 and higher education. And funnily enough, the very first research study that I was involved in was at Rutgers University in my, my home state of Jersey uh, and uh, South Jersey, which I, I'm, I'm going to say is, is my, that's where my heart is, is in South okay. Jersey. Okay. <laughs> I'm a Jersey girl. I oh, know right. Rutgers. Yeah. Okay. So I, there you go. <laughs> and, you know, you say you got into teaching in the 80s. So I was a, a freshman in college in 1983 at a little college uh, in New Jersey, Drew University, a small liberal arts college. We were the first class to get a computer as freshmen with tuition. So that kind of set me on a path of being a tech geek, but uh, it did take some time from the <laughs> from there but so isn't that funny so okay so started teaching yeah, in the 80s uh, yeah and so we had these uh, computers in fact we had a lab at the Rutgers um, Education Center the, the College of Education where we had students uh, come into the lab from a local school district it was at Camden um schools and the kids came into the lab and my first research effort was to measure student engagement with this brand new space age technology and the technologies that we used were an apple II computer and a game called the oregon trail wow that was the very first study and but what i found in that study that's what that's what kind of led me on this um trajectory because um, i was confounded and here's why when students were first exposed to the technology it was brand new and they had a bias and that bias was a novelty bias because it was so new, their engagement was really high throughout the activity, artificially so, I'll mm-hmm. find later. So when we were coding their engagement, uh, the other researchers, which were all graduate students like myself, we decided that kids' engagement was really high. But then something happened. Very quickly, their engagement dropped really low. As they got used to the game, as they got familiar with the process, they got bored. Interesting. And when they got bored, their engagement dropped. And I, that was confounding to me because I thought, well, why would, they, why would their engagement be bored? And the reason is that novelty is not sustainable. 
We can only have our first experience once. And so we can't really sustain a high level of engagement when there's a sameness, a routine, too much routine, too much mechanistic repetition. That doesn't really uh, keep our attention or um, keep our engagement. So student engagement dropped really quickly. And that was a seed of discontent that put me on a trajectory to figure out what's really going on here. What's the sweet spot between teaching, learning, and technology? And is there a connection? What is that connection? How can it be expanded upon? What kind of connections can I make? What's, what, what better research questions can I ask? Because at, at first, the research was driven by uh, naivete. We, we'd never experienced anything like this. So we kind of applied a, hey, let's, let's add the tech and see what happens methodology, which is a very poor methodology, you know, <laughs> but, it was, it, but no one had ever done this before. So the novelty of this was not lost on us. However, that same pattern of students getting some new technology, having their engagement artificially boosted by the novelty of the new technology, whether it was a computer or a laptop or a tablet or interactive whiteboards or smartphones, the novelty piques our interest. But that is not enough because novelty is unsustainable. So we've been on a kind of a, an, a, a novelty conveyor belt in education for the last 40 years where some new technology is perceived as the answer, the magic bullet, and it never has turned out to be so. That's interesting. So, uh, you know, you've been in, in the education field for so long. You've been an award-winning educator for so long uh, since the 80s. What what do you owe your success to? What do you think is the the magic behind the Maganya? <laughs> well, other than my native South Jersey roots. Uh, <laughs> actually, no, I, I, I take that back. I think it's because of my native South Jersey roots. I, I went to my undergraduate degree is actually in systems biology. So I was a systems biologist and uh, learned at another wonderful state college, Stockton State College, which was now it's now Stockton University. My background yeah. was in studying ecosystems and uh, trying to piece together the rich complexities of a very large and multifaceted system with a lot of moving parts. And I, and I really was trained to observe an entire system and try to understand the dynamic relationships within a system. And so I applied that to my work in education and I think of I the whole it. system, you know? You know, I'm a huge cross-pollination fan, mm -hmm. and um, and there you go, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Who knew you were studying education environments when mm -hmm. you were in biology? <laughs> yeah, oh, and uh, it, so it really, that, that training and that kind of experience of, of observing and studying and really thinking deeply and inquiry, you know, having inquiry regarding these relationships so that they could be better understood and if they're better understood, then we can find ways that will enhance them. And it's taken me a long time, but I finally have um, breakthrough evidence that shows an acceleration in learning productivity is not only um, possible, but it's highly probable with a certain sequence of tasks. And that's that's unique. That 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 really is is the secret sauce, I suppose, of Magani education is that you know this work is driven by four decades of research inquiry into a very complex problem space. Cool. So now are, is that the T three framework you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. Um, the T three framework Tell us is more is, about that. Sure, sure. Uh, happy to. Um, you know, I just kind of continued my inquiry to. Uh, 
see if there was indeed a, a connection uh, between improved learning practices and judicious use of technologies. And I, I, I assumed it was there, so I hoped it would be there, um, but it took a long time to actually find it. Um, interestingly enough, in 95, I was working as a, a, a principal of a, an alternative school here in Washington, and I was recognizing a, a real need for equity in technology. There, there was a beginning to be a technological divide, an, an ed tech mm-hmm. divide between the haves and have-nots. And uh, the kids that I worked with in high school were, were on the wrong side of that divide. And I thought, you know, this should be equitable. Uh, the use of technology should be equitable and universal. Every child in the United States should have an equal opportunity to develop their tech capacity, their learning in a technological environment, because that's what the future would bring. So I envisioned a new school and created uh, our state's first cyber school. And I think arguably it's the first cyber school in the nation in 1995 um, to support students learning online and in person and what I called a distributed model. And that laid the foundation for the T3 framework. I love that. You know, I I can't help but um, reflect on, you know, in the 80s, you were talking about student engagement. In the 90s, you were talking about the ed tech divide. I feel like there's still topics that they've evolved maybe, but it's still so relevant, though both topics. And I love the distributed model. It sounds so much better than hybrid model. I'm really glad you said that. I kind of came up with that, that term. And again, you know, looking from looking at a systems perspective, the whole enchilada, that's a really difficult thing to do and keep your eye on the big picture while you're simultaneously trying to understand the, the parts and the interaction. But the whole is typically greater than the sum of its parts. And that that is true of learning systems, whether it's a classroom or a school or a district or even a nation. You know, the whole system really is what we should be focusing on. And uh, cyber school just seemed a natural extension of my inquiry. And then that became a new uh, study. Like what happens when students are in a distributed model where learning is distributed 24-7, 365, and kids interact with new content, with their teachers, and with the world around them in more meaningful and authentic ways. So their learning was very, they weren't just learning about the world, they were learning with the world. Mm-hmm. And I bet that's got to be some some inspiration and and sort of encouragement, motivation um, for the teachers and the educators as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that little program just uh, was rather far ahead of its time um, because our our staff um, shifted our roles from deliverers of instruction. We stopped being transmitters of information. And instead, very quickly in this environment, we had to become facilitators of knowledge generation. The students were doing all the cognitive lifting, you know, the heavy, <clears throat> the heavy lifting. The, the cognitive load was on them. And our role was to coax out the best capacity, the best learning pathway for them. So we were really guides. We were kind of learning Sherpas. (laughs) We weren't, you know, spoon feeding them, but we were learning Sherpas. And that changed everything. And it it really just changed us. We were forever changed. We also did some research. A friend of mine did her doctoral study studying the cyber school program, and it was highly successful. It's still going on. It's still serving the needs of kids. And interestingly enough, during the COVID um, 
uh, a pandemic, the, the, the onset of the pandemic, the cyber school model was kind of um, um, un, un, undeterred. They, they just kept going because that, yeah. they, they just kept learning because that's how they, <laughs> you know, that's that was part of the legacy. Yeah, the world just caught up to it. Yeah, out of necessity, but it, you'd already just developed it. That's so cool. Um, you had once noted that educators must efficiently manage modern technology and the learning tools and processes to, you know, better prepare the students for social and professional success in the future. So how do educators go about that? Well, I think we do the best we can, given the information and the resources and the training that we have at our, our, um, uh, disposal. Um, unfortunately the reality, um, in terms of impact, is not a rosy picture. Uh, I, I work. I have the real uh, great honor of working with uh, Professor John Hattie, who's a, uh, an education researcher of, of uh, world renown, and and Robert Marzano, the Marzano Research. Uh, however, Hattie did a, a meta analysis on the impact of technology on student learning, and he allowed me to publish it in in a, a research uh, uh, document that I, I'd um, been working on. So this is the first time that his research on the impact of technology really saw the light of day. And what he found was that. The impact of technology directly on student learning productivity is dismally low and has been unchanged for 50 years. Wow. It's a bit of a shocker, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a shocker. So since Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, the impact of technology on student learning has been meager, dismally low, and unchanged despite the remarkable advancements yeah. in technology. Now that's confounding, isn't it? It is. So Let's why unpack that? Yeah. <laughs> why is that so? How's that for a phrase, right? I hate that phrase, but you got to you can't just land that one. That's like one foot on the moon. Um so you're uh I'm your Buzz Aldrin holding the door. So go <laughs> okay, ahead, Neil. Tell me the story. <laughs> so one one small uh, uh, inquiry for mankind. For, for man, but a larger uh, <laughs> uh, design for mankind. Well, here's here's what it is. I'll, I'll give you a metaphor. Um, we have taken essentially um, a 19th century pedagogical model, and that model is called the tell and practice model, where teachers tell students what to memorize. Mm-hmm. Students practice and rehearse and memorize that information and then regurgitate it back on some type of assessment to determine how well they memorized this content. That's the dominant pedagogical model at work in these United States, tell and practice. The problem is that that's a very low impact model. Um, continuing research shows that lecture and, and information delivery um, has very low efficacy. It has uh, a really decidedly meager impact on student learning. And what we've done is taken that model and added technology on top of it. So when you have a model that just is focused on memorization, no matter what technologies, no matter what innovations or inventions you add to it, if the focus is still on memorization, you're really not going to get the affordances that are provided by the technology. So I'll give you a metaphor. Here's a South Jersey metaphor. It's like taking a 19th century donut and putting 21st century sprinkles on top of it. (laughs) Yeah. Or I always go back to process automation, right? You can automate the process, but if it doesn't work, you just have a better, faster process that doesn't work. That doesn't work, (laughs) right. 
And in many ways, you know, that's a really good point. In many ways, technology has just been used to automate tasks in the educational process. We automate teaching tasks. We automate learning tasks. We automate testing. We automate enrollment, record keeping, budgeting, grading, communication. And that's necessary. That's important. But all too often, learning systems stop there. And Mm -hmm. they need to recognize that this is um, a stage. It's a step. And that's why I developed the T3 framework, to have a, a model that can help guide the ongoing development of new teaching methods, new pedagogies that take advantage of the affordances of new technologies and allow learners and teachers to do new things in new ways with a much higher degree of efficacy. And that's what the T3 framework is about. That's pretty cool. And um, and let's talk a little bit about e-learning and sort of the distributed model, yeah. my new favorite term. <laughs> so um, some of the data that I have here says the uh, research between 2012 and 2018 that the growth rate of e-learning among U.S. college students was 5%, with at least 35% of higher ed students reporting enrolling in at least one distance learning class or course. How important is it that educators prioritize understanding and utilize this digital technology and those types of opportunities for students to adopt? Well, I think it's incredibly important. I I think the future is going to be uh, um, a distributed future in terms of learning. I think we're going to have more distributed models of uh, experience and interacting with new content, interacting with learning peers, interacting with our instructors and then producing something. So I think what we experienced last March when Mm -hmm. most higher education teachers moved into a cyber teaching role uh, was a harbinger of the future. However, it seems like so many of our faculty members uh, who were not familiar with cyber learning themselves, they didn't have ample opportunities to experience best practices or even breakthrough practices, cyber learning. They had to become cyber teachers overnight. Overnight. And I I used to be a a lifeguard on the Jersey Shore, so I I use this analogy. Um, It's almost like asking teachers who don't know how to swim to become lifeguards. Yeah, that had to have been just really trying. Really remarkably arduous. And so, you know, I've developed tools and processes to help um, higher ed faculty become facile uh, or become, become uh, uh, more um, adept rather at uh, distributed learning processes and strategies as learners themselves. And that way they can turn around and emulate those strategies in their uh, distributed uh, classrooms. So do you think that the education community has um, walked away from the the experience of last year saying, yep, we know how to do distributed learning. We know how to do distance and, and just say it is what it is. Or do you think that the, the uh, realization is, wow, we survived it, but we need to really make it better. And how do we go about doing that? Where, where on the spectrum are they? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a distributed uh, response. I think that I think you know on one end of the spectrum, if I could you know line it up in a in a, a, a normal distribution curve, which is it's a model. It's not going to be completely accurate, but it'll give you some sort of a, a, a guidance. I think there's going to be a portion of um, higher ed faculty and institutional thinking that's going to want to go back to the good old days. 
I think there will always be a bit of a, you know, um, mm-hmm. nostalgia bias. The way bias. we've always done it, yeah. yeah. I, so I, <laughs> that's right. It'll work for me. It'll work for them. Uh, and I think there there will be those institutions that that fall victim to the trap of a nostalgia bias. And think of the good old days when, you know, everybody was doing we had one lecture hall and uh, folks would crowd into a lecture hall and we'd have four, 300, 400 people and a very charismatic and, and energetic and entertaining lecturer would give a brilliant lecture. Um, so I think there's some that are going to do that. There are others that are going to probably kind of straddle both worlds and try to replicate a knowledge transmission lecture in an online setting. And I think some have tried that with varying degrees of success. It's not the most elegant model. In fact, it's really um, a way to use technology to do old things in new ways. Mm-hmm. But then there's going to be those that are going to be on the cutting edge. They're going to be on the front edge of the chasm and realizing that, okay, we have to do new things in new ways. We want to pioneer a new approach to our concept of adult learning in higher education that is more student-centric So the student is at the center of the experience and the student themselves are more involved in planning for their learning, expressing and representing their learning in ways that are, um, uh, that take advantage of the affordances of of, uh, contributive technologies that are available to them and have students be more involved in assessing and evaluating their own learning growth. The kinds of things that teachers do, I think we need to have uh, students do that more. And in the process, we'll shift our learning conversations. And this is the big aha I want people to take away with. What my research shows really clearly is that when we shift classroom learning conversations from monologues to dialogues, the shift and the transformation in learning productivity is astounding. Hmm. Well, it's sort of, you know, like a business analogy that comes to mind, right? If you want to initiate or or get gain acceptance for an idea, you have to get input and buy in and people have to feel a part of it, right? So same thing, if you if you want a student to be engaged in their learning uh, growth and, and possibilities, they have to have some level of engagement, not just be told, memorize this, do this, do this, but- um, And do it I in isolation. It. You know, yeah. uh, do it in isolation. I think most people have, a, have an image of learning as, uh, uh, an individual sport, like a long distance runner, is just you got to do it. You yeah. just got to do it on your own. Well, John Dewey taught us uh, almost a hundred years ago. He's, he's an educational philosopher and researcher and author. That's uh, is one of my you know heroes. Really, um, he taught us many years ago that learning is a participatory sport. You have to be active. You got to get off the bench and in the game. Well, my accumulated research. Uh, indicates that not only is learning a participatory sport, it's a team sport. Learning improves when we learn together. Put me in, coach. Yep. I like that. Yep. I like that idea. Put me in, coach. Exactly. Let me, let me contribute <laughs> to, the, to the well-being of everyone on the team. And so when, when we have uh, strategies that allow students to discuss the content, the concepts that they're learning, the, the, the new terms, the new facts, the ideas, the insights that they generate, and do it in a way that's more contributive. That moves the needle of impact forward remarkably so. In fact, the, the T3 framework uh, strategies have peer review, compounding evidence, and peer-reviewed effect size of 1.6. And so I'm going to mm-hmm. geek out a little bit here. A 1.6 effect size is a, me- is a term for meta-analysis. It's a, a new type of approach of doing 
analysis where you don't just do a single study, but you do an analysis of analyses and you get a much larger sample size. And so you have a more accurate um, way of representing impact. I think uh, meta-analysis uh, provides um, the most reliable way to determine what is going to have a positive impact on learning productivity. And an effect size of 1.6 is equivalent to a quadrupling of learning wow. productivity. That's amazing. I like those numbers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, we saw effect sizes that were even higher. And this is work that I did with my friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Marzano at uh, Marzano Research, combined with research that I did on my own. And it was peer-reviewed by, by Professor Hattie himself, actually, and Michael Fullen, you know, looked at, looked at my research, looked at our, our models and said, yeah, this is really exciting. These are breakthrough um, uh, strategies that can lead to a pronounced acceleration in student learning. And here's the kicker. That pronounced acceleration seems to be um, an affordance that will occur in face-to-face learning, in mm-hmm. online learning, and in some combination, some distributed learning model. And that holds That's a lot of promise, cool. I think. That holds a yeah. lot of promise. It sure does. So let me ask you this. What advice would you give to other educators to foster educational success, excuse me, and a love of learning in their students? Because you just, you are so excited about learning and I just think that you must have some advice about how you think educators could impart some of that love of learning to their students. Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, we all have a love of learning. That's why we go into this field. It's a calling. Teaching is a calling. It's not a profession. You 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 either answer the call or you re- you or you re- you know reject it. But those that are in the work, it's it's difficult work. We're knowledge workers, so this is really challenging and complex um, uh, body of work. But we all did it because we love learning. I think I think to a person, folks that are in the field of education love to learn. They love to explore the world around them. They learn something new about themselves with each new uh, learning experience they have. And so my suggestion would be this, not so much advice, but a suggestion, um, is to shift from highly competitive learning spaces to more contributive learning spaces. Uh, if, if I may, I'll go in a little bit more mm-hmm. detail to that because this is a, a, a theory that I've been developing called contributive learning theory. And it's quite simple, really. We learn better together than we learn in isolation. But too often, our learning spaces are highly competitive, where students are competing with each other for a graded average or a, a particular number of uh, 4.0 grades. We, we focus too much on, on, on how the competition to memorize. And right. I think creating on the curve, right? Creating on the curve. It's, it's something that we <laughs> yeah. Um, but the compounding and peer-reviewed research shows that when we shift to a more contributive learning model, where students are contributing not only to their academic success, but to each other's well-being and uh, mental, social, psychological health in the process of learning, that innate love that we all have that's Some of us may be buried inside, um, uh, but it's there. It's released. It's drawn out. We draw out that innate desire to be a valued contributing member of some cohort. And then learning flourishes. 
we can have a measurable increase in student learning. In fact, if we move to more contributive spaces, you will at least see a doubling of student learning with these T3 strategies and apply them and have a lot more fun doing it. It's a win-win, right? (laughs) You know, how can you, you know, how can you go wrong with that? Mm -hmm. So let me have one last question, if you don't mind, a few more minutes here. Don't mind. Um, Really enjoying the conversation. Great. Me too. Um, How about long-term? Like, where do you see e-learning and distributed learning headed in the coming years? Where do you see it? Where would you like to see it? Like, if you could say, you know, if you could uh, predict, not predict the future, but create the future, where would you like to see it? (laughs) (laughs) You can answer either way. Sure. No, that's a a great question. You know, I, Funnily enough, that, that cyber school model you know, 25 years ago seemed like an anachronism. It just seemed like it was um, the wrong at the wrong time for that particular placement of learning. 25 years later, now it seems like an imperative. It, it <laughs> yeah. no longer seems like it's out of place. It seems like an imperative. So I think a cyber learning future is is a vision I'd like to have folks leave with. What what imagine? A world where students can interact with the, each other, new content, deepen their understanding of content, apply their understanding of new content to solve wicked problems that matter to them. And in the process are recognizing that they can have access to learning experiences, deeply immersive learning experiences, 24-7, 365, and use their understanding to recognize that learning is not an end to itself. Learning is a means. And I would would submit that learning is a means to making the world a better place by identifying and solving one wicked problem at a time. So that's my kind of future of a cyber learning model where we shift away from highly competitive learning spaces to highly contributive learning systems where the system is focused on whole person and whole system well-being and mastery 24 7 365 well i think that is the perfect place <laughs> to wrap this conversation it's so well said such great information and uh, i'm ready to go back to school uh, <laughs> um but um, thank you so much for your time today, Sunny, and thanks for for uh, sharing your ideas. You have um, you referenced so many of the articles and things. We'll try to put some of that in the show notes uh, below the podcast, so our listeners can dig a little deeper into the T three framework and some of your research. But thank you for joining today. It was a pleasure, Susan. Thank you very much. And before we sign off, uh, if you've enjoyed today's conversation and you like the podcast, help others find it by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and you can rate and subscribe us, subscribe to our channel there. And uh, that would wrap us up for today. That, that's it for us. I'm Susan Campbell, and this was another episode of The Big Rethink. <laughs>